Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Meredith Bunn, founder and managing director of Skills for Humanity. Meredith is a medical and disaster specialist who has been operating in Myanmar for over seven years. Meredith manages a team of 1,500 volunteers right across the country. She talks to us about the escalating humanitarian crisis on the ground, as well as the risks people face every day right across the country while trying to assist and provide aid to Myanmar's most vulnerable. She also provides us with an update on the current COVID crisis that is hitting the country. Let's start the conversation. Hello. Hey, Meredith. Can you hear us? Hi there. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. we can. Great. So we thought what we would start with, Meredith, is maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your connection, where it first started for you. Yes, absolutely. So I've lived in Myanmar for, I suppose, around seven years. I kind of lost count after a while, but I primarily work within conflict and the medical fields. And so I, I came over to help in specifically conflict-affected areas and have lived throughout the entirety of Myanmar. My work itself has taken me to various different places within Myanmar itself. And um, I had taken some other jobs along the way. So I had tried to help any way I could during my first arrival in Myanmar. And through that, I decided to teach. I was trying to train people in medical first aid or anything I could because I realized there were so many people that was in such dire need and there's so many places you can help, but it's a little bit difficult to get started sometimes because there's so much to do, which is actually how I started Skills for Humanity because during my time in Myanmar, I thankfully have been very lucky to meet a lot of very wonderful people along the way and all of them have very graciously and very selflessly offered to help as well. And so we went from just being a small group of people uh, kind of helping along the way in various small towns or villages within Myanmar to being a larger group of around 1,500 members helping nationwide. So my, my connection to Myanmar is primarily work-based, but it very quickly became my home. I've lived there for around a quarter of my life, so <laughs> it's, uh, it's very much a home to me. And Meredith, you've set up Skills for Humanity, the, this organization. You founded it and you set it up. So tell us a little bit about the organization and what it does. The organization started very small. It was primarily myself just training people and local community leaders, community leaders in IDP camps or persons who were in dire need in specific areas, bringing them donations or sustainable development. And then as it grew, it became a kind of coverall organization. So we don't specifically focus on one subject. We try to cover every single thing we can. Any kind of help we can give, we give it. And that goes all the way from, as I said, education to all grades, to specialized education, to medical first aid, to more advanced medical aid and even med medical education, all the way through to conflict mediation, conflict liaising, uh, conflict resolution, 
and all the way to providing sustainable development in the kind of concept of agricultural development, water filtration support, shelter support, wash support, and we even help with security and protection. This also includes trafficking rehabilitation, so rehabilitation of trafficking victims and abuse victims, and even halting trafficking routes, so mapping trafficking locations and trying to stop the routes and the root causes of the trafficking rings. So I could sit here and kind of describe everything we do, but it might take a while. But we try to basically, as I said, help in any kind of way we can. Before the military coup, actually, we had just started projects in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and in some places in Africa, and also in the Ukraine. They were very, very small projects, and primarily through persons who I had contacts with before. But as the military coup happened, we unfortunately had to halt all of our outside projects and focus completely on Myanmar. And we've been very lucky to be able to continue our projects and been able to kind of enable others to continue their projects as so many organizations had had to cease their projects or limit their projects at least. And I assume, Meredith, that the the people that you're helping initially COVID would have had a huge impact uh, on the kind of services that you were offering people early on or, or people who maybe needed your assistance uh, probably grew during that period prior to the coup. So surprisingly, well, yes, there's two sides to this. Absolutely, COVID-19 took a huge toll in Myanmar, not as large of a toll as we had initially thought. We had kind of predicted so many people would be affected in the beginning. And surprisingly, not many people were infected, but it did limit a lot of organizations' abilities to get supplies to these areas. It did increase crime rates. So, for example, uh, it was very difficult for people to offer vaccinations or medical aid because they would be stolen along the way or the suppliers would be attacked. So we were still, again, lucky to be able to offer a lot of support during the initial COVID period. We did try and limit a little bit because we wanted to provide safety and uh, protection to our volunteers, but we were still able to sanitize donations, give essentials such as uh, hygiene equipment and food, water, etc. We were even able to still conduct surveys, which we do via handing meals out to homeless persons or poverty-stricken persons. And take details down, so giving them surveys to know how we can actually better aid them and come back the next week with their supplies or their support, which um, they have requested. So it had affected us a little bit in our kind of workings, but we were able to very quickly find a route around around it. That being said, I do think that a lot of uh, COVID-19 cases aren't necessarily reported or picked up in Myanmar. So while we can see the figures of being very low, especially before the coup, it was probably a lot higher than actually reported. But now it seems to certainly be taking its its toll even more. And then, Meredith, when the coup happened, obviously that's had a devastating impact all around the country, uh, even in the in the huge cities like Mandalay, Yangon, Naypyidaw, where conflict and poverty maybe would not be as obvious to those urban centers to the average person but now we're seeing it everywhere what are the biggest concerns you have from a humanitarian perspective at the moment in terms of helping people on the ground so 
I would say there were quite a few major concerns. Firstly, safety concerns. So many other organizations have been threatened. They've had some volunteers killed. They've had volunteers detained. They've had paid members of their organization killed. They've had paid members of their organization detained. We, we've seen a massive organization recently turned away from Mindet and their driver shot in the head. It's a huge problem safety in general. However, again, I'm in a very lucky position where I've been able to offer protection to our SFH members. And although safety is a consistent concern, we aren't in such a situation as everyone else, which again, we're very lucky to have that, but I'm always concerned for the safety of my volunteers, but even more so for the people that we are helping. We, um, previously had given donations and support to CDM rail workers and uh, some other organization then went to give some more support and supplies to them the next week and then the week after they were all evicted. They had all of their items seized and they were left homeless and told to just walk to a location and find somewhere to stay and they were forcibly removed from their location with guns and by the military and this is something else that's a concern. If you don't support the people in need correctly, you could potentially be putting them in grave danger. If you are consistently posting or saying this is the location we're donating to, for example, you're putting a target on those people. You're putting them in such serious danger of being detained, being killed, being homeless, having their children taken away, so many despicable things. So the safety for my team is is a huge concern. The safety for the people that we're helping is a huge concern. And then also some other concerns which are being brought to light recently. With the martial law enforcement in places such as in Langlaia and also in certain parts of Dagon, we are seeing a mass increase of people unable to obtain food, obtain medical care, and clean water. We see some people providing water for a week for people, but this isn't enough, and so they're taking to drinking flood water. So we're now seeing an outbreak of cholera. We're now seeing an outbreak of chronic gastrointestinal distress, and this is a killer for children. This is a killer for people who are not healthy already, and it is also going to cause a mass outbreak of not just the gastrointestinal diseases or bacterium, but this can also cause uh, lower immune systems, and it can then increase the rates of COVID-19 too. We are now seeing a shortage of oxygen. My team has just recently requested me to support around 30 tanks of oxygen just to one location, and it's it's a very difficult task to do, to get that amount of oxygen every week, let's say, to these locations. So shortages of food, shortages of medications, outbreaks of diseases, these are all things that we are facing and I know are only going to get worse as well. Meredith, what can the international community do? Or, or what, what, do, what do you need from the international community? Or what does Myanmar need from the international community? The issue with the international community getting involved currently is they could run the risk of further legitimizing the Tamador's reign. The minute the UN decides to come in to Myanmar with an agreement from the Tatmadaw, they have legitimized their reigning in power, let's say. They have legitimized them as an actual government body. 
And while the international community needs to get involved, it needs to be done in a very delicate manner. When providing aid, they need to go through other government bodies such as NUG or CRPH and provide support through them or provide support. Unfortunately, it's not it's not in their ability to do so, but to EAOs such as the KNLA, KNU, KPP. What the international community really does need to do, or rather what Myanmar really needs from the international community, is not just support, but they need a legitimization of not the TAPMADOR, but the CRPH and also the NUG. They need a legitimization of the people's concerns, and they need to be recognized. In concerns to what they can physically do, I mean, support for COVID-19 supplies, vaccinations, these are something that is in dire need. However, it's a very difficult situation, as I said before, due to safety concerns, but we are looking at a lot of people who are in just grave need of support for COVID-19. We need vaccinations, we need oxygen, food support and supplies, which can be passed through Thailand quite easily. And if the international community is willing, then they could work together with several different EAOs. I know for a fact that a lot of them would be willing to offer protection if they were able to get food across the border or if they were able to get water filtration devices across the border. That's something that I myself, with Skills for Humanity and HAC, sorry, is doing. We're providing supplies over the Thai border and even through the Indian border. And if we're able to do it, let's put it bluntly, if we're able to do it, international organizations are definitely able to do it. And if they aren't sure how to get this support over the border, there is protection available, there are routes available. But really, I would say, obviously, what's needed from the international community, they need to do a few things in general, but the delegitimization of the Tamadol, the delegitimization of MAL as a leader, they need to do more than just sanctions. They also need to do more in regards to supporting the upcoming government rather than the Tatmadaw's government. So, as you said, you've been involved in Myanmar for seven years previously, doing obviously some amazing work and skills for humanity in terms of the need for protection and safety of workers are just trying to get aid to people. That has become an issue just purely since the coup or was, were there safety issues in terms of giving aid to people prior to the February coup? There was definitely some safety concerns before. It wasn't to the velocity of now, but, you know, we would try and keep volunteers away from certain conflict zones, for example. I myself would go to those locations through my contacts. I would be given protection to certain EAO protected areas or controlled areas, for example. There's always been a conflict in Myanmar, as we all know, there's the longest running civil war currently, and a lot of clashes between different EAOs and a lot of clashes between the Tatmadaw and EAOs prior to the coup. So there was a safety concern beforehand, and I myself had seen quite a lot of conflict before, having been in Arikin State, having been in Chin State and uh, Shan State during several clashes. We did see a lot of issue with bringing supplies and support in, but it was easier. People were in a more understanding position and tensions weren't so, they were high, but they weren't as high. So, for example, now we have local communities which are very untrusting 
because they're so concerned. And even EAOs themselves, they want to help so much, but they have to be untrusting of new people. They have to be untrusting of people bringing supplies and support. They could be working with the Tatmadaw or they could be bringing more attention to this area. Is it really worth bringing some supplies in for a week that could potentially kill this group of people? So to not answer your question in such a roundabout way, I think, yes, absolutely. There was safety concerns. We were able to avoid it in a kind of manner of speaking. But now it's unavoidable. It's something that is consistently happening every single day. When we were sending support and supplies to Mindat, I had to create a distraction for our team to get into Mindat. It's brought Myanmar from being an upcoming developing country to being thrown back decades and the conflict situation is destroying so many developed towns and developed cities it's taken it so many steps back so the safety concerns have if not doubled quadrupled even we've spoken to several different people and one of the people that we've previously spoken to is like a lot of the people in the tamador will not want this persecution of the people generally they they won't want what is currently happening to continue but there's there's yet to be a very senior official to openly speak out and say that for fear of what might happen to them what might happen to their family or or for other reasons i don't need to put that onto people but listening from an outside perspective at the kind of level of insanity that is involved in not allowing people to get aid or putting any kind of threat onto people that are trying to get aid. It's just a, a very hard concept to get your head around um, when you're talking about people that are in control of a country preventing something that's supposed to be there to help and you have been there helping for seven years previously. It's not like everyone is going to be behind this and I think we're aware of that but there's not enough people higher up making the change, being able to speak out or, or being willing to speak out, I guess. Yeah, I completely agree with you. So a lot of the problems, especially with, as you said, with high-ranking officials, they're basically being held hostage in a, in a sense. And I would say about 80% of the Tamador does not agree with this at all. But they are in such a position of entrapment that they have no way out and they know that they can also do more from within. Another issue is, of course, the Tatmador has been purchasing soldiers because so many had defected. There was such a large population that had defected and their numbers of previously having nearly 500,000 soldiers, which was a public number they put out many years ago, which is completely false. They were, they were saying that they had 200,000 people still in the Tamador. It's still very false. Their actual numbers are less than 90,000, which is even less than the AA. So you could say that they're, they're scared, so they're being as brutal as possible to being able to hold this power because they know as soon as, for example, the war and the AA decide to go against them in a more effective manner, they don't really stand a chance. Meredith, just in terms of your team, you have a team, I guess, on the ground who are there. Is there any sense of hope that, you know, the National Unity Government or these PDFs, these, you know, local groups setting up, that they may overcome the military or are people starting to give up hope? We had the CDM 
uh, movement, which, you know, has people, have been, some people have been forced to go back to work, you know, threats to their families, their life. What's the situation on the ground that, that you're hearing? Are people feeling hopeful or are they losing hope? Unfortunately, very much losing hope. The CDM, as you just said, the CDM workers are being forced to go back to work. Some are even just, uh, they're running out of money. They have no money in general and uh, they have no way to support themselves, their families. They're being evicted from their houses because they're CDM. The CRPH had promised to give them a salary, which they never delivered on. There's a huge number of people just in Yangon alone that have not had their salaries delivered upon. Obviously, it's very difficult for CRPH to give that kind of volume of cash out without being in grave danger themselves. But it's still a situation where so many people are left in a very conflicted position where they have to go back to work either due to their threats or because they have no means to sustain themselves. And that alone is causing a lot of other people to lose hope within Myanmar. Seeing people going back to work is certainly something that's making people really feel as though they've been let down. And a lot of people are kind of not, not resigning themselves, but a lot of people are seeing very similar pattern to the 88 situation. And a lot of people are seeing a lot of similar situations in regards to many years ago. And they feel as though history is repeating itself and they don't know how to get out of it. I would definitely say the younger generation, you know, there's still some protests, but they have to run. They have to run because of fear of their life. A lot of people are joining PDF, which, you know, it can be a good or it can be a bad thing because they might not be properly trained and they could be putting themselves in further danger, but they feel like they're doing something and that's keeping them motivated and they are doing something, of course, being very heroic in that sense. But to put it bluntly, I would say people are losing hope. But the Myanmar people, they have so much perseverance and they are just phenomenal in their capacity to just take this kind of situation and think, okay, well, we can get out of this. We've done it before. And that in itself should rightly so give other people hope and themselves hope. I think some of the people we've been talking to on this, and we're, we're talking to so many different voices inside, outside, in different countries around the world. And one of the things a lot of people have been saying is, is this is the first time there's a kind of unity amongst the ethnic groups or, or an understanding of what they've been through. And I think there's hope within that, as in, I guess, people seeing through the military tactics of conquer and divide, seeing the actual atrocities happening on their streets, as opposed to just hearing about them has changed a lot of people's mindset and also the fact that so many people have participated, even if they've stopped now, people know how their neighbours feel, they know how their friends feel, they know how their colleagues feel, even if they're being forced back. So perhaps there's a bit of hope in that, but as you say, history tells us that the military quashed this and it's taken them a bit longer than in 88, but it's just trying to motivate people to keep going and to let people know what people like you are doing, what people all around the world, inside and outside, there's a lot of people still fighting this cause in many, many different ways. Uh, and we're really just trying to highlight that as much as possible. It's, I think that a lot of people are trying to help from the outside. And I think what you two are doing especially is really important, bringing to light 
the information and trying to keep the situation in people's minds because it's so easy for people who aren't in Myanmar to forget about it very quickly. And, you know, it's obviously, of course, not no risk to either of you as well. It, it, it is a, still a risk to both of you. And I think it's so important for people to just take a moment to remember. And, and again, it's such a situation where so many people don't actually know where Myanmar is. They don't know it. You say to people, oh, I was in Myanmar. They say, where? What is that? And you say Burma. They think Bermuda or something. <laughs> and so it's really important to consistently have it in people's minds and bring it to the front of people's views and just bring some sort of education to it as well and have people recognize it. So I do really thank you both for that. I think as well, Meredith, like we know that your organization, because you've been operating so long and you've got such a team on the ground that you you have ways and means to get aid to people still. Um, we know some groups are not in that position or maybe you're assisting some some other groups so if people donate to you, like they can know that it is going somewhere, it is it is reaching people. Absolutely. So I myself, I suppose you could say I'm a little bit paranoid when it comes to taking donations because you know, when you when you donate to some charity or some organization, sometimes you feel, okay, is there hidden costs? And sometimes it's maybe like a ten percent admin fee or something. So something that I do is consistently even if somebody doesn't want it i send them receipts and pictures just to make sure they know but it's difficult in this position especially because so many people are starting gofundmes or so many people are trying to start uh, ways to to send money over there and some of them aren't so genuine and some of them are are trying to help but then they they raise some money and they don't necessarily know how to get it into country if you go through organizations like myself or some other trusted organizations like Holding Umbrella Foundation, uh, Gaia Food Foundation, the Gaia Food Project, sorry. these organizations are consistently able to get money on ground. They're consistently able to immediately get supplies and support with that money. My organization in particular doesn't give monetary donations out because we don't know where it then goes. As much as we understand that people need to pay bills and they need to pay for things with money, we try and offer to pay bills for them so that we can at least have that kind of evidence to show, well, this person donated $100. They need to know exactly where that $100 goes. And I think transparency is something that is so vital in this position because the last thing in the world I want anyone to feel is they went out of their way to try and help somebody in this position and they feel cheated out of their donation. And so making sure that people see that money go towards a bag of rice or even something like uh, baby supplies and then seeing that photo of the supplies and then seeing those supplies in that person's hand, it's just something that makes people feel really amazing about what they've done and it's not something that you can necessarily get all the time when you donate. And so I think that's really important. And on your Facebook page, Meredith, is predominantly where you post that information. So it was previously on the Facebook page. However, due to safety concerns, we are no longer posting photos very much. I try to post edited photos, but again, it's just quite a high risk. So what I do is I actually personally message everyone myself <laughs> and send them photographs that I send them. You know, I've had a lot of people say, Mary, I don't need photographs. We know it's going to where you say it. I'm like, well, just in case, here's a receipt, here's some photos, <laughs> just to make sure. But honestly, if anybody ever donates to us, 
we try and message them as soon as we can to say you've donated this amount. And even through our fundraising page, I think it's Go Get Funding, they take a percentage, but I personally cover that percentage out of my own funds because I just feel that it's so important that people, you know, you donate £100, you get £20 taken off of that just by some website. I feel that, you know, I'm very happy to cover that amount just to make sure that people get that full amount that they have donated. And even if they're anonymous, I try and find out who they are to try and send them some photos because it is something that I, I just really feel passionate about. You get to see the people you're helping and even edited photos, you get to see what it's helped and how much it's helped. And I think, I mean, I know a number of people who have volunteered with your organization, uh, friends of mine. My last day in Yangon, I spent with two people who work with you and I had a lovely day with them. And I know they speak so, so highly of you. And I, I don't know why I always pictured you were this really old woman because you have done so much. I was like, she cannot be that young. Like, this is like superwoman. But anyone who's worked with you, worked for you, helped just speak so, so highly of what you do and how how organized, how brilliant you are at what you do. And, um, you know, I can completely vouch because anyone I've ever spoken to about you tells us about this amazing person. So it's lovely to finally meet you and share share what you're doing. But you're doing amazing work. Thank you so much. That's, that's really, really kind. I, I definitely, I can't agree with you on that, I'm afraid. But I try, I try to do what I can and I think that, you know, obviously I know some of the people you're talking about and they try to try to give me compliments. I can't even express how highly I can speak of them. I can I can certainly say some of the people I've had the pleasure of meeting and having on my team are just it's so heartwarming. And it's something that you would never expect. It's something that even when I first started having a larger group of volunteers, we were in Yangon and I was stood there shouting at people in the middle of the street, telling them what to do. And they, they're so ready and willing and they're giving up their spare time. They're giving up their free time. They, they're working in 40 degree weather. They're, they're carrying boxes and trying so desperately to help these people. I just think that every single last one of the people in my team, I cannot say how much admiration and how much love and care I feel for them. And I will lay anything I can on the ground for them. They're my family. And even though we have about 1,500 people, <laughs> every single one of them, I cannot express how truly valued they are. And I would do anything for them. One of the things that I would like your perspective on, Meredith, is a lot of people, and I think you mentioned even in your team, have been arrested and, and you know, a lot of people were put into insane prison early on um, for protesting. Some even, as you say, for just helping people. Is there a stigma attached to that when those people are released? Because I know quite a number have been released in the last few weeks. In their communities, is there like a fear that they're going to bring trouble to the community? Do they get hassled afterwards? What's it like for them? So just very quickly, we had only one team member detained. He was unfortunately not wearing his SFH shirt and was protesting with a group, which were student unions. And student unions were primarily targeted at that time. And it was very difficult for me to locate him. But we managed to get him out, thankfully. As for the stigma surrounding it, it's kind of hard to describe, but they're almost, in a way, reversed. A lot of people hailed them as heroes almost because they are. They lived through hell, 
even if they're an insane for a day or something, they're still heroes and certainly most people's eyes in my own. And they have some people who consider them dangerous to be around. But there's a very, very small population and most people do really think, wow, you did something amazing. You did something amazing. And it's, it's like a rite of passage into the political world at the moment in Myanmar. If you're in politics, you've been in jail. And so people know you did something right because you're standing up for what you believe in and you're standing up for other people. And so when it comes to that kind of stigma, those who are fearful of them, it's mainly because the Tatmadaw, once they've had you arrested, they're going to consistently try and target you. They're going to give warrants back out to you if they see you doing anything. The rest of the population just tends to kind of put them in the frame of, you know, you did something right. That's why you were arrested. Meredith, we're hearing a lot from people that we know in, in Myanmar now about these bombings that are happening far more frequently, even in Yangon, you know, schools, electricity, offices. And it, I mean, it's hard to know how much of this is people fighting back, how much of it is military forces. But what are the risks on the ground there for just everyday people going about going about their lives? So the explosions are not all entirely random. Obviously, there have been some that are pro-military that have been creating explosions in specific areas to try and draw attention and either to kill some people or to get certain people arrested. But then the other explosions, which are anti-military personnel, it's, it's not as random in that kind of circumstance. And so it's not as big of a risk to civilians as if it's from the pro-Tatmadaw side. Currently, I would say that those who are in martial law protected areas are at the highest risk, but everybody who is trying to just carry on along their daily life, I wouldn't say they're at high risk. Everyone knows just to stay away from specific buildings such as the post office building, the immigration building, certain areas in Dagon, Sikkim, and uh, Langthaya. We have to remain somewhat hopeful for Myanmar's future. But yeah, it's tough times as well. We're, we know that too. And, you know, we are sitting in the safety of our homes here doing this. The one thing that's really worrying to me, certainly, I mean, apart from everything, everything else, but one thing that's really worrying is it's becoming such a norm now at the moment that people are starting to just kind of get on with their lives. And the minute people start to just get on with their lives is when they've won. They've accepted the government and they've accepted the Tamador and it's it's kind of becoming oh an explosion happened oh yeah I know every every day right it's kind of becoming like that and so we really do need to try and make sure that people outside certainly are, are taking focus and making sure that people in Myanmar know that there are people outside noticing okay an explosion down the street isn't just a little thing that's in, that's important you know somebody was shot today okay someone was shot every day no that's not that's not how it should be. Someone was shot today. That's a big news. That's big news. And I think that, you know, it's really important. So, yeah. I mean, you see the, the images that the military put out in terms of their parades and the, the numbers and the, all the weapons that they've got and stuff. And you hear, you read that China's still funding them and that they're getting money from Russia and all this kind of thing. And then you just said, like, the reality is there's probably 90,000 in that regime that are fighting and, and, and going out and doing that. For the whole population of Myanmar, if they were able to unite and co- coordinate it, I mean, it's not hopeless. There is hope. It's, you know, it's, it's a heartbreaking hope, but there, there is hope. Absolutely. And 
you know, something else that's important to note. Yes, China and Russia are backing them, but they're not backing them without cost. And so, you know, as despicable as it is to say, if somebody offered them a better business transaction, it would be all of their backing gone. I hope as well, like new more people, when they're listening, they'll see that there are people out there. They don't get this information of people like you. Like, unless you come to their house with, with rice, they don't really know about you, you know? So again, I just think the more people hear what people are doing, the more they realize that people haven't forgotten, people haven't moved on, people are still fighting. Maybe you just can't see it, or maybe no one's told you, but hopefully from listening to this, they'll, they'll know that there are so many people out there like you uh, doing their bit to help and just to, to hang in there. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've been very quiet, and I've actually shed a tear or two. Like, Meredith, I'm just completely in awe of you. Like, what you're doing is absolutely amazing, and what you have been doing for the last seven years is just, I mean, it, I'm, I get very emotional because the people in that country deserve so much better, and there's people like you, like, risking so much to make sure that some of those people get some of what they deserve. And it just makes me sit here thinking, I wish I could do so much more, but absolutely what you're doing is amazing and what you've been doing for the last seven years is absolutely amazing so I'm very much in awe of you <laughs> thank you so much I think I think honestly you uh you need to remember also uh, it's really difficult when you're not in the country and you've been there and you're seeing what's happening and you're hearing what's happening and you almost feel like a sense of guilt like oh I should be there doing something but the reality is you know every single one of those people in Myanmar want you to be safe and they want you to be happy and they want you to not be worrying about them and, and putting yourself through this kind of emotional torture. Just remember that, you know, you can do so much from outside as well. And as you're both proving, you're taking time out of your, your busy schedules. You're taking time to, to make something to try and make people listen to the plight. And, you know, it isn't something most people would do. You get lots of people who pass through Myanmar and then just go, oh, well, I was there and wear it like a trophy and aren't actually doing anything. And the two of you are really trying to help. And I think that's, that's really admirable in itself. Meredith, we, we really appreciate you because we just know that it's not easy for you to find the time to do this. I feel hopeful that Myanmar has someone like you. You know, it, it actually, in some ways, I feel kind of inspired that they're in good hands. And I can't believe that you're just young. You're so young. <laughs> because I, you're just, you've done so much and you're, you're just amazing and you're, you're, you're doing great work. And I hope anyone listening will be inspired and know that there is someone like you who's getting supplies, helping people and they can trust in, in your intentions and where their money would be going if they do wish to donate. You don't have to send everyone a, <laughs> a picture after. I don't think you could keep up. <laughs> Thank you so much, Meredith, and we'll stay in touch and and look after yourself. And um, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, pleasure to meet you. Absolute honour. And just well done for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. And I I have to run off now, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. Bye-bye. This conversation was recorded prior to the current COVID-19 situation which is having a devastating impact right across Myanmar. We caught back up with Meredith to get a first-hand account of the situation on the ground. Hey Meredith, so obviously since we last spoke, we've been hearing reports that are incredibly alarming in terms of the COVID-19 situation in Myanmar now. So many people are dying. 
shortages of oxygen, just really, really harrowing stories and accounts from people that we know. So what are your team seeing on the ground? Um, can you give us an update on that situation? In terms of what we are seeing on the ground, COVID cases are rising exponentially. We're running out of oxygen. We're running out of medications. We're running out of room in hospitals. We are running out of everything. My team and I have created a COVID response unit, which is already vastly overwhelmed. We are trying consistently to purchase more and more oxygen cylinders to give to those who are in dire need. Something that we are having to do is prioritize, which is devastating. The situation is getting out of control to a point where we don't know if this is the Delta variant or if something new. We're in a situation right now where cases are growing and spreading to such an exponential rate that people aren't able to do research. We aren't able to get information regarding the symptoms. We aren't able to get information regarding autopsies, etc. This is something we aren't able to do, not just simply because of lack of time, but also due to lack of resources. The medical community within Myanmar, as much as they are doing, they are unable to spare that time to research whether or not this is a new variant. If it will go back to areas such as China or in India or other parts of Asia, if this will spread to other countries, we are still unsure about this. What I can say is, from what I have seen, people are getting sick faster. People are suffering from symptoms which wouldn't have normally been such an issue before. But what we do need to really think about is, of course, we have people who are panicking and perhaps are going on oxygen too early. I myself am not a doctor, so I obviously cannot say for sure if they are, but some of them have been noted. My team have been called out to young and healthy people who are desperately trying to find oxygen because they feel they have symptoms. So what we do need to really make sure is people start to feel a bit safer, but it's impossible to do so right now. When family members are dying every day and the military is halting all medical supplies or medical aid getting to so many different areas, we are struggling to get the supplies that we need to the people who really need it. What we have noticed is, thankfully, within the IDP camps and the refugee camps, we have noticed there are a few less cases than the previous waves. It's more in cluster areas such as large cities that people are really having detrimental effects. We are seeing more and more people fall ill faster and have extreme symptoms faster as well. And by this I mean we have someone who calls us one day. They say they are feeling symptoms of COVID. They have fever, they have aches, they are struggling to breathe, and then in three days they might have passed away. Things are getting rapidly worse, and I don't know how much I can stress that, but certainly not without repeating myself, but currently Myanmar is facing a dangerous conflict, a military regime which is killing them, which is arresting them, and then they also have this lethal virus which is taking away the older generation and even the younger generation now within Myanmar. They 
have already been through so much with the military coup and are now being placed under this oppressive constraint due to the virus, we are worried that we will not be able to sustain the amount of effort that we are putting into the response, which is really hard for a lot of my team members, certainly. We have team members who have lost someone. We have team members who have gotten sick already. All of our SFH team members who have fallen ill have quarantined themselves and are recovering, thankfully. We can't say the same for some family members, but it is certainly showing a gravity to the situation. And we really need to try and help as much as we can, but we also need to know our limitations. And without the international community stepping in and offering support, our limitations get much smaller every day. And by this, I mean, of course, we are trying to get vaccinations into the country, but with so many people sick, it's almost useless to give them the vaccination until they have obviously fully recovered, but until they have been able to put themselves in a position where they can stay away from the infected for a period of time. We have so many people who are trying to help, but we also have such an influx of people purchasing oxygen, which don't necessarily need to purchase it at this period of time, which has caused a surge in prices. It's caused a lot of places to sell out. And my team members, some of them are standing in line for three up to four hours trying to purchase oxygen for our COVID response team. And shipping oxygen from different countries, this is an option we are still trying to do and we are still doing. But it's becoming more difficult as Thailand is closing their borders for shipments for a short period of time, with how long we are unaware. What I can say in regards to your question, COVID is lethal, but the Tatmadaw's reaction to the COVID situation is more lethal. With so many quarantine centers being owned by the military and so many hospitals being under control by the military, people have been forced to stay home or stay isolated, stay away without getting medical treatment, without getting medical care. And it's falling onto the family members to try and take care of each other which can also spread the virus quicker because family members have to go out to purchase medicine, to purchase supplies, and to gather items and support for their family who are sick. Of course, they might not themselves be ill, but they might be a carrier. And with the vast amount of people purchasing, or rather over-purchasing PPE, we are now seeing a massive surge in prices as well. My team and I are purchasing full PPE suits for our COVID response team and also for anyone who's delivering supplies and support to those in need. And it's becoming very costly. We thankfully are in a position where we are able to purchase PPE from outside and ship it in, but we aren't sure for how long that will last. With so many people, again, worried at what the military will do to them or do in regards to so many people being sick, people are concerned that they will be quarantined or taken to a quarantine center, which a lot of people are mistreated in, and also more added risk due to the fact that CDM workers especially who are who are getting sick will also be vulnerable to the Tatmador's arrest or warrant list. 
So if they are found to be sick, their entire street could be quarantined, or the military could just simply take them away. I have heard some reports from some of my scouting teams that they have seen family members taken from each other, and they've not seen them again, said that they were going to a quarantine center, but it hasn't been shown. So in terms of the situation currently, we know COVID-19 is a particularly insidious and dangerous virus, but the military's practice, the Tatmadaw's way of handling the situation is much worse, and it is putting fear into people more than ever. We have so many people who are so fearful of what the Tatmadaw will do to them, and so fearful of all of the help being bought out, or people who are trying to purchase medications, they're concerned that the military will catch them when they go to get the medications. So people are going without food, they're going without medication to take care of their family members who are sick. And it's becoming a point where every single last COVID death in Myanmar is folly on the Tatmadaw's head. Every single person who has passed away due to this virus was essentially murdered by the Tatmadaw. And we can state that because they did not help their people. They have put them in this position where they are afraid to go and get medical aid or just simply not able to. So for that, what we are seeing on ground is essentially a genocide of their own people even more so than the brutality that they were facing before at the beginning of the coup and in the middle of the coup and even now, we are seeing calculated methods of stopping people from getting medication, stopping people from getting help. We are seeing calculated efforts from the capital to halt medical aid, to halt transportation goods and supplies to people. We are seeing people being threatened who are trying to offer support and aid to those who have COVID-19. And quarantine centers, again, are terrifying to a lot of people because simply the Tamador is certainly around that area. And if not, the quarantine center is owned by the military. So for all of those who have warrants out already and all of those who are CDM workers, they simply have no option. They have to go to a small clinic or they have to stay home. While staying home is not ideal, it can be made more comfortable, certainly. What my team and I are trying to do is prepare the COVID response teams, which are essentially mobile clinics, and they are going to be stationed and already are stationed in various different parts of Myanmar. They are offering medical checkups to make sure that persons are healthy, and instead of putting persons directly onto oxygen, we are offering different medications to try and help manage the symptoms before the last option of being on oxygen because of course oxygen toxicity is also a problem and we are seeing a lot of people who are suffering from it and it's not being spotted quickly due to the fact that people are treating themselves at home. They have oxygen cylinders at home and that's also very dangerous as they're so highly flammable. But in regards to our mobile clinics, other than offering PPE and simply paracetamol like proven, we're also offering more specialized medications. All of these persons who are administering the medications are either accompanied by nurses or doctors, 
or are themselves a nurse or doctor. And we are able to offer them antibiotics, we're able to offer them inhalers as well, which we have found to really, really help persons who are struggling to breathe. A large quantity of people have swollen throats or sore throats due to coughing so severely. The inhaler has been proven so far to help reduce swelling due to the steroids or due to the medications. This helps reduce swelling and it also helps them breathe a lot calmer, reducing their anxiety and also allowing them to kind of feel a bit of relief for a short period of time, if not for a longer period of time. So certainly for those who are younger and in a more healthy position, we have been trying to opt for inhalers rather than giving oxygen straight away because it is not sustainable to continuously give oxygen tanks to everyone who is demanding them. Unfortunately, we are trying to be selective with our administration of oxygen, but that being said, we are trying our best to give it to all of those who are really in need, which again is very difficult, obviously, due to so many people being sick. The figures also do not seem to be represented correctly. We can say a very large percentage of the population is currently sick with COVID. The exact numbers, I can't be sure, but we are seeing a large quantity of deaths every day, and the number is rising. There has been figures from some academics outside of Myanmar stating that there could be a possibility of 10 million deaths. I think that number is too high, and I think it is fear-mongering. I think what we need right now is not fear-mongering and instead support, and we need to make sure that these people who are sick feel as though they will get better, because they will, if they really do stay strong. In terms of what the international community needs to do or needs to know in regards to the situation on ground, they need to know that a vast majority of people were not vaccinated. And even those who were vaccinated, we have now seen two people who were vaccinated with COVID shield pass away from COVID. This is something that is very bizarre and it's something that needs to be investigated. I myself am not able to do any of this kind of research, not any kind of way, but I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of smart people who have some time outside of the international community who might be able to help move things along much faster if they are able to find out why this is happening and if this is the Delta variant, if this is a new variant or something, because then we are one step closer to managing it and also to treating it. And in regards to support, obviously vaccinations are so highly needed right now, but it's almost that so many people are infected that it's it's not as necessary as treatment. We need oxygen, we need medications, we need trained personnel who can help, we need more doctors, all of my team, certainly who have medical qualifications, are working around the clock. And we are seeing more and more people who were in the medical universities within Mandalay or within Yangon volunteering in the quarantine centres or volunteering in COVID centres just to try and help out. And they themselves have either fallen sick or they are struggling as well. So everybody is ready to go and ready to help, but we need outside help as well. We need people who are able to understand the situation on a more academic level. We need people who are able to understand this, and certainly those who are trained in epidemiology. That being said, of course, they can't come into the country right now, but there is ways to filter the information through. I myself have been 
seeing various videos and photographs that have been sent to me by my contacts of autopsies, and there is noticeable differences in regards to previous cases. So if we are able to give information to persons who are experienced in this kind of information, then we would be more than happy to send photos, to send videos, to send data reports, to send whatever we can, just to try and better understand the situation so we can manage it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.